This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 200. Greetings, metamorphs. Welcome to the 200th episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into worlds of fantasy and wonder. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fresh new fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share the latest news on my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 58 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her allies have foiled the plans of the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. After escaping a trap the cult set for them in the old water treatment plant, Kate received a telepathic message from Jared Tamlin, her former psychologist and the Brotherhood's latest captive. Ordinarily, Jared's telepathic powers are too weak to work without skin contact, but the Brotherhood inadvertently boosted his signal by running a ley line through his body. This was part of a black magic ritual being performed by the cult, which wanted to open a link between Jared and the mysterious entity known as the Shackled God. In the process, the ley line became colored with Jared's thoughts and aura, and Kate was able to pick up on them. Using that signal as a guide, Kate and Murakir were able to circle around upstream of the Brotherhood's ritual site, where they set up a ritual of their own. Murakir used his earth magic to build a channel between the ley line and a distant mountain. Then Kate, who has an enormous capacity for channeling arcane energies, began redirecting the ley line into the channel, running the wild mana through her own body in the process. It was the most difficult magical working that Kate had ever attempted. She would have failed, but Murakir opened the floor underneath her and dropped her directly into the ley line, forcing her to rely on instinct. Kate finally diverted the line just as the Brotherhood's spell was completed, and the Shackled God began to extrude itself into the world. The power to the spell was cut off, the portal snapped shut, and the Shackled God's intruding pseudopod reverted to a puddle of ectoplasm. Murakir found Kate on the banks of the underground river, coughing up water and trying not to fall back in. The Immortal knows that time is of the essence— they must act now to stop the cultists, before they disappear back into Metamore's high society. Unfortunately, Kate is exhausted from her ordeal, and too weak even to walk. Murakir draws in his Luton shamanic magic, recruiting two river spirits who are willing to lend their aid. The spirits take up temporary residence in Kate's body, restoring her strength and balance. And just as importantly, Kate can draw on her magic again. With her head clear once more, Kate and Murakir make a plan. Murray will close off the exits from the cult's lair, 
preventing them from slipping away before reinforcements arrive. Meanwhile, Kate will sneak in through the front door, using her powers of illusion to clear the way. Kate intends to assess the cult's remaining numbers and defenses, but she's also hoping to find and rescue Jared Tamlin, not realizing that Jared has made a temporary alliance with the cultists in order to escape from Murakir. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 58 Under the protection of her veil spell, Kate peered out from behind an abandoned building and took stock of the enemy's defenses. Or she tried to, at any rate. After the ley line was diverted, the cultists had apparently taken the sensible precaution of killing all the lights around their main entrance. Peering into the shadows, Kate could just barely see the gleam of distant street lamps off of overturned barrels, trash bins, and other bits of junk, which cluttered the approaching alleys and blocked lines of sight. Kate was sure there must be shooters back there, especially given what Morgan and John had reported earlier, but she couldn't begin to guess where they were hiding. Still, it looked like a rush job, not a carefully planned defense, and Kate suspected that the Brotherhood was operating in crisis mode. Cutting the power to their long-planned ritual must have really spooked them. Well then, Kate thought with vindictive pleasure, let's give them a crisis. She found a convenient hiding spot on a nearby side street, about ten meters to the left of the intersection where the cult's defenses began. There, she found a large, heavy refuse bin, the sort that rolled directly off the back of a skimmer truck and could carry several tons of waste. Peering out from behind the corner of the bin, she had a decent view of the frontmost third of the alley while the heavy steel box and the trash within it provided some protection from enemy gunfire. After taking another half a minute to check her surroundings for stray bad guys, Kate let her veil fall away and drew out her Arthana. As a wizard, a spellcaster whose magic depended on the careful, focused application of magical theory, Kate was always at her strongest when she could plan ahead. Over the course of her time in MCPD, she had developed a number of pre-prepared illusion spells, which she could invest with mana well in advance, and then trigger in the space of a few seconds. The process was much like storing a spell inside a scroll, but instead of trapping the spell weave into a pattern of ink on paper, Kate was trapping it within an isolated section of her own mind. Those pre-prepared spells inevitably came with trade-offs. On the plus side, they did not dip into Kate's current mana reserves, because she had already invested in them when she created them. They were also, of course, much faster and more detailed than an illusion Kate was weaving on the fly. The disadvantage, however, was a lack of flexibility. The figments they created were largely generic, and followed a preset script that Kate had programmed into them. They could be altered once they were up and running, but only by applying the same level of focused concentration that Kate would use on an impromptu spell. Still, 
Kate felt that one spell in her bag of tricks would work perfectly well without any modifications. Focusing her concentration on that locked-up corner of her mind, she pointed her Arthana at the alley entrance and released the spell. Immediately, the air was filled with the sound of approaching sirens. From the upper levels of the city, half a dozen police cruisers swooped down and surrounded the enemy building, casting brilliant searchlights down onto it and all the surrounding alleys, including the one Kate now faced. The cruisers were joined by a pair of SWAT team gunboats, which aimed their ventral machine guns at the target with a loud and menacing whine of servo motors. A male voice came from the loudspeaker of one of the gunboats, stern and commanding. Drop your weapons! The sudden arrival of these apparent reinforcements triggered a storm of enemy gunfire. Bright flashes of light and the loud reports of military rifles filled the tight, narrow space behind the barricades, all of it pointed upward at the figments of the cruisers. It was a good thing that the spell didn't require concentration to keep it running, because Kate nearly fell to the ground in a shaking huddle, images of the dead thrall dancing before her eyes. Three things made it more bearable than the last time. She was expecting it, she was behind cover on the other side of the street, and she was not trying to use a gun herself. She gave herself a moment for the flashbacks to clear, then clenched her jaw, braced herself against the reassuring steel of the waste bin, and looked back out at the alley again, examining the scene with the detective's cold, careful eye. Four shooters crouched amid their makeshift barricades, their positions illuminated by the searchlights and the intermittent flashes of rifle fire. They were using the weapons in burst mode, delivering short, chattering salvos of three bullets at a time. That told Kate that they'd had more professional training than the average street thug. Most gangers who got their hands on an automatic weapon would attempt to use it in full auto mode, on the assumption that more was always better. Unless you had supernatural strength, though, it was impossible to hold a fully automatic weapon on target for more than three to five bullets anyway, so the spray-and-pray method of shooting resulted in a lot of wasted ammunition, and sometimes a bunch of dead or injured bystanders. These Brotherhood nuts were being smarter than that. They were smarter than street thugs in another way, too. After twenty or thirty seconds, they realized that the police cruisers weren't taking any damage or returning fire, and they stopped shooting. One of them shouted something to the others that Kate didn't catch. It might have been in another language, or maybe it was just muffled by distance. Then two of the shooters crept out from behind their barricades, rifles raised, and started sweeping the street, presumably looking for whoever had created the illusion. Time to move. Kate dismissed her figments with a gesture, throwing the street back into darkness, and called up her veil again. This time she added an audio screen underneath it, which dampened the movement of sound through her bubble of camouflage. It would muffle her footsteps on the open concrete, making it harder for the enemy to locate her by sound. The downside was that it would also muffle her own hearing of anything outside the veil so she would have to be especially watchful that nothing snuck up on her. She circled the block, 
moving as quickly as she dared, and approached the enemy building from the left flank. As she'd hoped, the cultists' defenders had been drawn away by her figments. There was a single sentry standing guard at the roof's edge, and no one at ground level. Kate stayed in the shadows and close to the walls. Her veil was more like adaptive camouflage than true invisibility, and it worked best when she had a solid surface to hide against. She slipped past the guard, crept up to the door, and opened it a crack. Darkness inside. She paused and listened. Out in the alley, the shooters continued to shout back and forth to one another. Definitely not in common, she was sure now. But beyond the door, she heard nothing. Tightening her grip on her Arthana, she eased the door open and slipped inside. The room beyond was as black as the ninth hell. Kate had no idea how large it was, what was inside it, or where the entrance to the tunnels might be. She waited for her eyes to adjust, but there was no improvement. Someone must have blacked out the windows, blocking even the dim light of the distant street lamps. With her audio screen in place, she couldn't even use acoustics to estimate the size of the room. She fought down the instinct to call forth light. It was the obvious thing to do, and it would just as obviously make her an easy target, veil or no veil. The Brotherhood had to know that someone would be coming for them after the way their ritual had been disrupted, and they wouldn't want to make it easy for their attackers. They could be waiting in here, ready to gun down the first idiot with a torch who walks in the door. Come on, Kate, think. If she walked forward with the veil and screen intact, she would be both blind and deaf. If she dropped the screen, someone might hear her footsteps and decide to unload a storm of bullets in her general direction. She needed a third option, and she needed it fast, before one of the defenders outside re-entered the building and ran into her crouching in front of the door. Do I know any spells that might help me here? It's not like I don't have plenty of mana after taking a bath and a freaking ley line. The ley line! The memory of redirecting that massive flow came back to her, and with it came inspiration. Kate turned her attention away from her useless mortal eyes and opened her wizard sight. Immediately, the air around her filled with the faint, glowing forms of magical fields. She saw the swirling, semi-transparent spheres of her veil and audio screen, delicate workings of blue-green energy in the same hue as her aura. Focusing beyond them, she could see lazy currents of air mana, the slow pulse of earth beneath her feet, and a distant stream of water mana bound to the underground river. Looking down at her own body, she saw the flow of life mana within her, moving back and forth between her amalan and branching outward to fuel the two active spells. She also saw a pair of glistening, sky-blue patterns she did not recognize, wrapping around her in fluid, curving paths, feeding a stream of quiet power into her mystic center, the water spirits Murakir had summoned. Kate didn't understand that sort of magic at all, but the creatures were giving her the strength to keep going, and right now that was all that mattered. Kate raised her Arthana 
and moved it in a slow, horizontal arc in front of her. As she did so, she allowed some of her stored mana to flow outward, not the intricate weaving of a spell, but simply a pulse of raw, magical energy. It traveled outward in a wave, the same unfiltered blend of arcane aspects she had absorbed from the ley line, and as it traveled, it separated. Air mana spread out the most, expanding freely until it bounced off the walls of the room, painting those otherwise invisible boundaries in swirling eddies of golden light. Earth mana struck the floor and branched out within it, finding a home there, and in the process, its dull orange glow outlined an open shaft descending into the earth, less than ten meters away. Life mana sought out structures of wood, still drawn by the echoes of the cellular life that had brought forth those mighty trees. It clung to wooden stairs and shipping crates in a carpet of sparkling green. And high up on the back of the room, perched on a narrow catwalk, two humanoid bodies glowed green as well. Kate could not see the rifles in their hands, but traces of fire mana gathered tentatively around the bullets in their magazines, drawn by the destructive potential of the explosives within. Kate resisted the instinct to freeze in place. The men must have night vision goggles, but Kate's veil was specially designed to mask both infrared and visible light. They might have seen the door open and close, but they would not have seen or heard anyone coming inside. Kate could imagine them wondering what was going on. Had one of their fellows started to open the door, then stopped? If they fired at what seemed to be nothing, would their bullets hit their allies outside? That uncertainty had stayed their hands, for now, but the best thing Kate could do was to get out of their line of fire before they investigated further. She moved forward quickly and quietly to the stairs, found the handrail, and descended. She passed into a broad, irregularly shaped chamber, where the earth mana spread out into darkness in all directions. A basement? She wasn't sure. The steps continued downward, though, so she ignored the chamber and kept moving. Her mana pulse had traveled five or six meters down the second passage before it petered out. She crouched on the last step she could see, then sent out another pulse. The mana shone brilliantly in the tight confines of the staircase, and she followed it down another four meters to a straight, level corridor, chill and wet and stinking of mildew. Her earth mana painted a spiderweb of glowing orange tunnels, disappearing into blackness to the left and right. She released a third pulse, this time, the life mana clung to nothing but a faint scum of bacteria on the damp, cold stones. Kate dug into one of the pockets on her reagent belt and pulled out a small piece of quartz, about five centimeters long, with a stubby copper handle at one end. She couldn't see it now, but she had examined it when Murakir gave it to her. The earth mage had etched it with the image of a skunk. She placed her thumb over the activation rune at the base of the crystal, and spoke the command he had given her. Then she gripped it by the handle and held it up to her ear. Murakir, she said, tentatively. She kept her voice low. 
The audio screen would block most of the noise she was making, and the ten meters of stone overhead would block more of it, but she didn't want to tempt fate by being too loud. Can you hear me? I'm here, Murakir said. The crystal vibrated to recreate his voice, and it came out high and tinny. Report. Four guns in the alley, one more sentry on the roof, though there might have been more I didn't see. Two more shooters inside, on a catwalk at the back of the building. I'm down on the tunnels now, and I haven't seen anyone else. Good, Murakir said. Take the left passage, straight ahead and down. I have closed off two of the exits, and I am about to seal the third. Once their bolt holes are shut off, I will come in the front and deal with them. Do what you can to delay their escape. Got it. Kate paused. Any sign of John and Morgan yet? No. They may be in hiding until reinforcements arrive. That didn't sound like Morgan's style to Kate, but she suspected it was pointless to argue with the immortal. All right. Let me know if anything happens up there. I probably won't be able to hear it. Good hunting, Catherine. The crystal made a soft chime and went still. Kate guessed that meant the skunk had rung off. She slipped the crystal back in its pocket and continued on. When she was twenty meters or so from the staircase and still had not seen any other defenders, Kate let her audio screen fall away. The tunnels were narrow and had many cross corridors, which presumably led to other parts of the Brotherhood's complex. Kate did not like the idea of running headlong into a group of cultists, with no warning. She moved quickly and quietly, her ears attuned for the sounds of trouble. Her instincts had been good. Less than a minute later, she heard the noisy tramp of boots coming up the passage behind her. They had electric torches with them, and the lights played dizzily over the passage as they ran, superimposing themselves on Kate's mage sight. Kate ducked into a side passage and crouched there, then peeked out from behind the corner. Six men in rather ordinary street clothes were running up the passage, carrying pistols in one hand and torches in the other. Kate winced at their poor weapon discipline. They had their fingers resting on the triggers of their guns, and they were pointing the gun's barrels at damped near everything but the ground. These were not the disciplined warriors Kate had seen upstairs. They were a bunch of idiot teenagers who were clearly new at this. Judging by the timbre of their voices, they were also scared out of their wits. I don't understand, one of them was saying, in plain common, no less. I just used that exit yesterday. What happened to it? Ursinus said the immortal is out there said another, in a tone of abject dread. He's supposed to be a master wizard. Oh, God, he's probably got us all boxed in here already. Quiet, said another. He was trying for a stern air of command, but Kate could tell that he was just as scared as the others, and probably not much older. Mr. Sedrastia was headed for the south exit. We can meet up with her. She'll know what to do. We'll never make it, the first one muttered darkly. The wizard will be here any minute. In Kate's experience, the bad guys rarely gave her a better straight line than that. Raising her Arthana, she put her back to the wall nearest to the cultists, let her veil drop, 
and wove together a new illusion. She called it into being about three meters further down the passage, which made it at least ten meters from the approaching cultists. The image was roughly the same shape as Murakir, but Kate made him a bit taller and more muscular, so he would look more intimidating. She gave him a flowing robe of blood red, a glowing yellow eye that burned with power, and an old-fashioned wizard staff. He struck the end of the staff on the ground in front of him, and it let out a boom like a clap of thunder. The runes on the staff burst into angry red light. The cultists let out high-pitched cries of alarm, and the passage erupted with panic fire. It was deafeningly loud in the tight confines, and the image of the thrall flashed once more in Kate's perfect memory. Her whole body shook at the flashback, and her grip on the figment slipped. The image of the skunk faded back into darkness. She had been expecting that, though, and at this moment, it worked in her favor. He's veiled, one of the cultists shouted. Shoot him! Shoot him! The terrified young men emptied their guns at the now invisible threat, and bullets bounced and ricocheted all over the passage. Two of the young men let out sharp cries of pain, struck by the panic fire of their allies. Kate kept her back to the heavy stone walls of the side passage, praying that none of the bullets would hit her with an unlucky bounce. The guns clicked empty. Where is he? one shouted. Did we get him? Back to the stairs, the wannabe leader shouted. Go, go! Wait, another one cried. His voice was thick with pain, and Kate guessed he was one of the ones hit by the stray gunfire. Don't leave me here! Damn it, the leader kid growled. Help him, come on! There was a confusion of panicked footfalls, shouts, and groans, which receded back toward the staircase. Kate got shakily to her feet, staggered another five or six meters up the side passage to a small landing, then collapsed against the wall again, panting. She closed her eyes and tried to will her heart to stop racing. I have got to fix this shit, she thought sourly, as the now familiar tightness clutched at her chest. This is ridiculous. She stayed there for two or three minutes, her breathing and heart rate gradually returning to normal. More groups of cultists raced by in the passage below, in both directions, but no one approached her hiding spot. Evidently, they had already cleared out of wherever this passage led to. And with that thought, she noticed the uneasy feeling at the edge of her arcane senses. It was a greasy, cold sensation on her skin, a bitter taste at the back of her tongue, a twist of nausea in her gut. Death mana. She opened her eyes and looked around again with her mage sight. There were two passages, branching off from the little landing where she now sat. One led straight ahead, through an arching doorway, and the other continued upward, via another short flight of stairs. The lingering taint of death mana oozed out from both directions. Kate could not have said what led her to go up the stairs. Though the sense of the death mana filled her with unease, she also felt a tug on her mystic center, 
a force that seemed to draw her inexorably forward and upward. Soon she stood at the entrance to a simple stone room, with nothing in it but a single heavy chair bolted to the floor. But Kate knew this place. She had seen it while she was in the ley line. She looked up at one corner of the room, where for a brief moment a hole had been torn open between worlds. A chill ran through her at the memory of it, and she shuddered. Tamlin, she whispered, turning in a slow circle and taking in the room. You were here. Where did they take you? But if Jared Tamlin could still hear her through the strange bond they had shared, he gave no reply. And that's the end of chapter 58. Come back next time when Jared and his captors try to flee the base and John and Morgan make two horrifying discoveries. Bernard Malamud said, If the stories come, you get them written, you're on the right track. Eventually everyone learns his or her own best way. The real mystery to crack is you. So grab your magnifying glass, and let's see how far I've gotten in cracking the case. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,143 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 786 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 329 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on All the World of Fire. I'm having fun with this one right now because I get to catch up with the members of the Summer Cell and see what they've been up to in the five years or so since they got their happy ending. It's also a new challenge for me because I'm having to write children, and I need to find ways to make them different enough from each other to be interesting. The story is still in Chapter 9, but I think I'm almost finished with it, and the manuscript is up to about 25,500 words. I also did a bit more work this week on No Exit, my Callie short story. I had intended this piece to be flash fiction, but it's already at 1,500 words, and I haven't found the end of it yet. I have no idea if this is going to wind up being anything I can use, but I'll keep coming back to it until I reach the end. This story is also an experiment, because I'm writing it using the Pages app on my phone. That means I can work on it in times and places where I don't have my computer with me. I don't think I'll do this often. For one thing, autocorrect is even more annoying when you're writing fiction. But it's helped me keep my chain going on a few days when I otherwise would have broken it. So in that respect, it's already been a success. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, 
take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.